Let's turn to Matthew 23. for the last time during this series. It feels like three months, but it's only been 12 weeks. So... Father, we give you thanks for your word. I thank you for the inerrancy of it, for the infallibility of it, and for the sufficiency of it. I thank you for the truth of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our guiding authority and our foundation. I thank you for the doctrine of tota scriptura, all of scripture is important. We come now to finish up this very challenging chapter. Sometimes your word is filled with sweetness and light, and sometimes it thunders. And this has been a a thundering challenge of a chapter. We thank you for every word of it. We ask that as we turn to it this last time this morning, that you would bless our efforts, grant us spiritual sight, grant us faith and obedience, that we may glorify you and enjoy you forever. And we thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. In this chapter, of course, Jesus set his eyes on the scribes and the Pharisees, and he identified a number of sins, and he pronounced judgment on them for those sins. This has not been an exhaustive list. That'll have to wait for the great white throne judgment. But it is a lengthy list of indictments. I'm kind of glad to be moving on. And I know that a couple people have commented to me, this is kind of getting hard. This is getting old, a little bit redundant. I wonder why Jesus would have gone on and on, making the same basic point over and over again, pounding this out like a a blacksmith shaping iron on an anvil. And I, I can't tell you for you, but I know that when I read scripture and I study scripture, when I come across a a single line of rebuke, a single point of rebuke, it's easy enough to just kind of move past it quickly. And Jesus has simply not let us move past this quickly. Even if we had dealt with this in a single sermon, which would have been a a huge challenge, we would have had to focus on the fact that, that eight times he pronounces eternal judgment against these men. In a sense, this woe encapsulates all the rest. We see in here that the scribes and the Pharisees were the same as their fathers, their, their uh, religious fathers, their ideological fathers, if not their actual fathers. We see that they're under the same judgment. And remarkably, we see the, the kindness 
of the Savior (coughs) and the love of the Savior. So let's begin then, verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So as by way of reminder, it's Wednesday of, of Passion Week. Jesus' crucifixion is less than 48 hours away. Perhaps his death is less than 40 hours, 48 hours away. I'm not sure when in the day he's speaking these words. Jesus is speaking in the temple. Uh, On the eastern side of the temple, you can look down and across. You can see the the ridge that's called the Mount of Olives across a narrow valley. That valley is called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is filled with hundreds of tombs and a number of large monuments. Now, what's so interesting about those monuments is that several of them were built during what's called the the Julio-Claudio dynasty, which which stretched from 31 AD to 60, 68 AD. During the, the time of Christ, during the end of his ministry and during the end of his life, could have been when these things are taking place. So I actually have a, a picture. Penny can bring that up. Uh, on the left is the tomb of Absalom. It stands 66 feet high. You can't really see it very well, but if you look at the bottom left, here you see a doorway. That doorway leads into the tomb of Jehoshaphat, which is a nine-room cave system that was used uh, as a tomb. There were burial niches, and there were other rooms in there as well. A couple of hundred feet south is all, is the tomb of the sons of Azir. Here, uh, the sons of Hazir were a priestly family. And then next to it, uh, this is a single picture, but next to it is the tomb of Zechariah, which is a, a monument carved out of a single piece of rock. It's a monolith with an opening at the base and an entrance into the tomb of the sons of Azir. So when Jesus says, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the graves Uh, the monuments of the righteous, he wasn't speaking metaphorically. He may have stood on that eastern edge and pointed down at the workmen as they were carving. What a reminder that this is a historical book. These things took place. He's not using poetry. He's actually describing their behavior. By the way, the tomb of Absalom had nothing to do with the historic Absalom. The tomb of Jehoshaphat had nothing to do with the historical Jehoshaphat. The tomb of Zechariah had nothing to do with with the historic Zechariah. And so when he says you're building the tombs of the prophets and adorning the monuments of the righteous, it, it was the first century version of virtue signaling. They weren't serving those men at all. And their behavior didn't undo the murders or the bloodshed. They just thought it did. I want you to notice the disconnect. 
you say, and, and you just have to forgive me the emphasis on the pronouns here, you say if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We would have listened to the prophets. We would have believed the prophets. We would have stopped our fathers. We would have defended the prophets against our fathers. That's, that's the claim. Does that claim hold up? No. How do we know? Well, it's because just as God had sent prophets to their fathers, God had sent prophets to them. He sent John the Baptist whom they dismissed. They didn't listen to him. And of course, the father sent his son long ago at various times and by various ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Did they listen? No. The truth is that apart from a very small number of men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Saul of Tarsus, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees completely rejected the prophet that Yahweh promised Moses he would send. Dakota read those words this morning. God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This whole chapter is God requiring it of them. They have not listened. As nearly as I can tell, as nearly as I can tell, when Jesus finishes speaking to them in verse 39, he never speaks to them in public again. He's done. The rest of his time is devoted to his disciples, the final preparations for Passover, and the Lord's table, the time in the garden to prayer, to prayer and, and then a word or two during those mock trials. He's done addressing them. His final words to these men were judgment. He's requiring it of them. The amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't have to do anything but quote them. You bear witness against yourselves, verse 31, that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. These sons are doing their father's work. And they're receiving the same judgment as their father's. So Jesus gives them over to their sin. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Fill up as a command. But it's an exact parallel to what's said in Romans 1, where it says, and God gave them over. The Lord Jesus could have stepped between them and the judgment to come. He did that for Nicodemus. He did that for Joseph of Arimathea. He did it for Saul. He did it for me but he didn't do it for them. Instead, these men are not delivered from their sin. They're given over to it. So just to be clear about this, God is not making them sin. Being given over doesn't mean that God suddenly causes you to sin against your will. Neither is he tempting them to sin. 
God doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1 makes that very clear. To the contrary, God actively restrains every sinner to one degree or another. Nobody is allowed free reign. Even Satan is not allowed free reign. These men, in being given over, are simply being allowed to do what they want. Jesus is taking off the handcuffs. He's unbuckling the straitjacket. You want liberty? You want freedom? You want to follow your own desires? Go for it. There are many in our time, there are many who who claim to be Christians and perhaps are who say that that people are basically good. That 95% of a person say, is good, and, and there's only 5% bad, and that 5% is enough to send them to hell. But they're 95% good. People are just basically good. Well, if people are basically good, then when Jesus says to these men, the handcuffs are off, the straitjacket is unbuckled, do what you want, the likelihood is that they wouldn't do anything bad. The likelihood is they wouldn't do anything remarkable at all. But, of course, they bring about the death of Jesus. People are not basically good. We are sinful by nature. That's why we don't need a second chance or a good example of how to live right. We need a new birth. We need to be remade. Because as we are, we're wicked. Well, the result of these men being given over to their sin will be the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, and the violent, hateful persecution of Jesus' apostles and and other followers in the, the years and decades and centuries and millennia to come, till the end of time. Jesus declares to them that they share in their Father's judgment. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So every week I'm stupid. Every week I'm stupid. I... I Think something stupid every week. And then the Lord fixes that. So I don't know what I'm thinking stupid that he's going to fix this week because he hasn't fixed it yet. But I had kind of always assumed that when Jesus talked about a brood of vipers, that it was like saying a flock of sheep or a herd of cows or a murder of crows. Brood means offspring. means children. means offspring. You serpents, you children of serpents, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Your fathers were murderous, so were you. Only God's restraining hand has kept you back from violence. They are part of a spiritual line of hostility that reaches back to Cain, who killed Abel because Abel's works were righteous. The fathers had been condemned by God as murderers of the prophets. The scribes and the Pharisees are their children. And as sons, they do what their father did. Now, Jesus' question is rhetorical. There is no escaping hell. How will you escape hell? There is no escape. There is no escape. How will you free yourself? How will you avoid hell? You know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about when Jesus returns sinners and the wicked, calling for mountains to fall on them, to cover them up. 
And it's possible that what they're saying is, we don't want to die at the hands of the Lamb of God, so mountains kill us. It's also possible that what they're saying is, hide us, conceal us. There's no place to hide. There is no place to hide. Here's the wonderful thing. The gospel speaks to this exact situation. There is no place for the sinners in our world to hide from God. There is no way for them to escape hell, but they can be delivered from it. The same God who is the righteous judge who condemns sinners to hell is the merciful deliverer who has made a promise. Believe in Jesus Christ according to the gospel. Look to Jesus on the cross dying in your place. Cast yourself at the foot of the cross that has your name on it, that he bore. Call upon Jesus' name. Repent of your sin, which doesn't mean do works of penance. It means turn your heart and mind away from your sin, which is killing you, and toward Christ, which is a daily turn for us. And God promises to save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All. All. Well, how are sinners to know how to do that? Well, I want you to see the mercy of God in verse 34. On account of this, on account of the judgment to come, on account of the fact that you can't escape the sentence of hell, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. So stop right there. Even with this pronouncement of judgment, the love of God shines through. Jesus, who is the one they hate so deeply, the one that they want to put to death and they will put to death in, in two days, is going to send prophets and wise men and scribes to them. Prophets are going to preach that Jesus is the crucified Savior and the risen Savior. Wise men are going to counsel them from Scripture as to what to do with their sins and what to do with their, their nature and, and of, of who Jesus is. And scribes are going to teach them the Scripture so that they can know the eternal God. All of them are ambassadors, as Paul said. Uh, so then we are ambassadors for Christ, as, as though God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. By the way, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul doesn't say, we beg you on behalf of Christ, reconcile yourself to God. It's passive. Be reconciled. Turn to Jesus Christ. God will do the work. We know that every person who hears the gospel and believes in Jesus, turning to him, will be saved. They cannot escape the sentence of hell. I could not escape the sentence of hell. You could not escape the sentence of hell, but you could be delivered from it. And that's what your God has done for you as in Christ. So he's transformed his enemies into lovers of God, lovers of his people, faithful disciples, followers of Christ, he has joined us as living stones into his holy house. He has made us the temple of his Holy Spirit. We've become part of the body of Christ. We've, we share in his holy royal priesthood. <coughs> we are a people for God's own possession. How? Because of his mercy. Because he had mercy on us. The most we could ever lay claim to is that we long to be saved and we turn to the Savior. 
And the Bible tells us that even that longing comes from him. Repentance is a gift of God. And the faith that we exercise comes from him because otherwise it could not stand that test. So picture the Lord Jesus standing in front of these men, his eyes filled with holy strength and tender mercy, looking these men in the eyes and telling them they cannot escape, but he will send them prophets and wise men and scribes. And then immediately saying, some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. He's telling them that they cannot escape hell, but they can be delivered from it. And then he immediately tells them, the men who will tell you how that works, you will kill. You'll pour out the same hatred and violence on them as you have on me. How could their hearts be so hard as to dismiss his love? How could they be so wicked as to hate his mercy? It's sin. It simply renders us paralyzed, unable to help ourselves. So when, when we share the gospel with someone, we virtually never see an immediate result. In 30 years of, of ministry, every immediate result I've ever seen has turned out to be a false conversion, everyone. That doesn't mean every immediate conversion is a false one. But every immediate conversion that I've seen, every immediate response to the gospel has been false. That man or that woman wanted something and they told me what they thought I wanted to hear in order to get it. On the contrary, I've known quite a few people who came in hungry, who came in not sure about where they stood spiritually with, with a measure of humility. And I said, stay and learn. Dive in, dive into the word, listen and learn. And over time, you watch faith grow and flourish. See, our job is, we've only got two jobs. One is to plant seeds and the other is to water the seeds that somebody else planted. It's not our job to reach down into the dirt and, and produce an ear of corn out of nothing. It's God's job to give the growth. It's God's job to bring the harvest. By his, by his will and by his purposes, I have not gotten to see with my own eyes the moment of that harvest for very many people at all. And I would love to see that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing when it happens. That's not our privilege. We have to wait. We can only wait for time to pass so that the history of that person's life reveals what has happened to the seed I planted or the seed I watered. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't have to wait for time to pass. He knows. So he's able to, to look these men in the eye and say, you're going to kill and crucify and flog in your synagogues and persecute those that I send to you. And by the way, those he's going to first send are standing right behind him. Aren't they? Peter 
and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. They're hearing him say this. And I wonder if any of them are saying, um, can I ask a question? Who are those guys? He already knew what they would do. It's not an exact parallel, but they're like the false teachers that Jude describes that were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Their offspring still fill the world today. Their history is still unfolding. At this moment, a countdown begins. Jesus says in verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So that clock begins ticking. This judgment is going to happen to these men. In 66 AD, the Jews began a revolt against Rome. Tensions had simmered for a long time for a variety of reasons. Uh, the oppressive rule of the Romans, a huge gap between the poor and the wealthy, religious tensions, uh, taxation. Rome took levies and taxes from their their occupied countries, and those continued to increase. And then a Roman governor stole money from the temple treasury and arrested a number of Jewish leaders. In response, the Jews captured the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, the, the Antonia, which stood on the north end of the Temple Mount. You could see it. If you were at the temple worshiping, you could see the Roman faces looking down at you. They deliberately built it higher than the temple. In response, the Syrian legion, 6,000, 7,000 men invaded and were massacred about 10 miles west of Jerusalem. 6,000 men were killed. Emperor Nero gave the Roman general Vespasian four legions of troops and gave him the task of crushing the rebellion and Vespasian invaded. And a couple of years later, Nero was put to death because of his perversions and threats to the empire and Vespasian was was recalled to Rome and made emperor and Vespasian left Titus Titus laid siege to Jerusalem for seven months and then finally breached the defenses and the temple and Jerusalem were utterly destroyed in less than 40 years of Jesus speaking these words this generation is going to hear this It's important that we understand this. Jesus is not giving them a spiritual or allegorical prophecy. He's telling them what is going to happen to their city and to their lives. The prophecies of God come to pass in time and space. Next week, we get to start the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, dealing with the end times, dealing with the return of Christ. There, there's some darker moments in that, but it, it's looking up from here. It's certainly looking up from chapter 23. So it's so important to understand that the, the second coming of Jesus and the rule of Jesus on earth is as literal and real as the destruction of Jerusalem was. That's what makes me a premillennialist. Postmillennialists and amillennialists allegorize everything from the resurrection on. Every fulfillment, it seems, from the resurrection on simply has a spiritual fulfillment. It's not a historical, earthly fulfillment. 
which makes zero sense to me. We might be tempted to think as this chapter has unfolded that Jesus is speaking with a barely controlled rage and a sense of vengeance. So verse 37 inserts a tone of mourning. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. John 1 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Back in verse 13 of Matthew 23, Jesus said, you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so he says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate in this generation. The temple is going to be destroyed. You will have no place. You will have no home. You will, ha- you will have no spiritual home. Not until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's not a generalized statement. That's a reference to Jesus himself. He doesn't say, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. So it's not simply about Jews recognizing that in history, the Messiah came in the person of Jesus. I think it's talking about his second coming and about the events surrounding the tribulation when it seems the vast majority of Jews alive at that time are brought to a recognition of who he is. And they finally say, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord or who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, it's, it's been a tough slog as we bring this home. It, it's, it's been a tough road through these, through these passages. I, I, I'm not sure that there's been 12, but I think there's been 10 sermons. And it's, it's, it's been hard. I felt it. You felt it. The, the most obvious application I think we can made is, make is to emphasize the need for humble faith. The scribes and the Pharisees had become so attached to their traditions and so proud of what they had achieved that they simply could not humble themselves and set it aside. There's an informal fallacy, and at the moment I couldn't begin to tell you what it's called, but it's kind of an investment fallacy. And the idea is that as, as you pour yourself into something, the longer you devote yourself to something, the harder it is to admit it's, it's wrong. You've just invested too much. You've just invested too much. And there, there comes a point in, in anything where you just have to give it up. We had a, uh, a, a wheelchair van or two ago. We, we had, in fact, I think it was the white Dodge Caravan we had when we moved to Nebraska. We got here... And we started having uh, issues with it just nonstop. And, it, and we had it in the shop repeatedly over and over and over again down at Jerry's. And the, I love the guys at Jerry's. They're not the cheapest in town, but, but they're, they're good and they're devoted. And, and uh, I got to the point where I just said, I'm, I'm, just, I'm sick of pouring money into this. And Kurt over at Jerry's said, 
I'm, I'm just dying to figure out what's going on. If you'll pay for any parts, we'll cover the labor. Well, I said, okay. And what we finally ended up with is that in California, we just used whatever gas was there. And here we'd use the gas with ethanol because it was cheaper. And the ethanol was dissolving all the junk in the fuel system. And then all of that was just continually clogging is what was going on. But my point is we'd reached the point where we'd, we'd put so much money into it that it was no longer worth keeping it going. It was, it was, it was just burning money. That's where the scribes and the Pharisees are. That's where we can get if we don't allow ourselves to be reformed by the word of God and say, I used to see it a certain way, but as I've studied, the Lord has shown me, and I let go of the assumptions that I had, and, and I want more of this. Semper reformanda, we need to be constantly reformed by scripture. It doesn't mean that we're always wrong. It means that we, we're always in need of polishing and fine-tuning. If you're going to defend something, defend the word. If you're going to boast, boast in Jesus. Let me add a couple of other points. First and foremost, God is love and God is holy. The world wants God to be love, at least how they define love. But they don't want anything to do with the holiness of God. And we have to reject that thinking. I know self-proclaimed Christians. I've got names and faces in my mind right now. They love the idea of the love of God, at least as they define love, which is creeping ever closer to how the world defines love. But they absolutely loathe the idea of the justice of God. They hate the judgment of God. They hate the very idea that God will destroy the wicked. We should not be happy and find pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but we should exult in whatever brings him glory. God is not who we want him to be. He is not who we vote for him to be. He is who he is. He is love and he is holy. We can't separate those things. The second thing is, and, and I want you to hear me clearly on this, it is always bad when God lets you have your way. When God, when God says, I am giving you over to your desires, that should be enough for any one of us to stop and say, no, please don't. Because we have not yet been perfected. The day is going to come when we have passed from this life into the next and we're with Christ and then the resurrection has happened and we are whole and we have been raised and glorified and we're like Jesus where God could say I'm going to give you over to your desires and we would just go on being like Jesus as long as there's sin in us it's a bad thing for God to give us over you don't want God to give you over And third, we've got to build our faith. We have to build our faith. And I was thinking about this, and it, it's, it struck me that uh, illustrations, truth is always found in Scripture, but illustrations are often good everywhere. There's a point in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indy says to this woman, it's not the years, it's the mileage, right? 
Listen, it's not the years you have in Christ. It's the mileage. It's not how long you've known him. It's how far you've walked with him. We've all known people who have been in Jesus for years, but they don't travel with him. They take a few steps and their feet hurt and they get tired and it's hot and they sit down. And then a few weeks later, they they take a few more steps and they'll say, I've been a Christian for 53 years and you'd never know it. I'm not saying that their faith isn't real. I'm saying that their faith is thin. They've never thickened it by use. There's a a couple that lives in Israel, uh, Sergio and Rhonda, and they, they do YouTube videos, which are just precious. And several years ago, Sergio and a couple of friends walked from Jericho to Jerusalem. The hard part of the road's 15 miles. It's not paved. It's, it's a rocky trail. One of their friends is a pastor from the east coast of the United States. This man has not worn shoes in decades. He carries a thin pair of slippers with him if he goes into a restaurant or a store that requires shoes, but he takes them off as soon as he can. He has simply gone barefoot. He walked from Jericho to Jerusalem barefoot. Jesus didn't do that. They wore sandals. I can't walk outside to my car barefoot if there's acorns in the driveway because it just hurts. I don't go barefoot. Even in the house, I get up and and I generally put shoes on if, if I'm not wearing shoes, I'm, it's like I'm half naked if I'm not wearing shoes. I just have to be wearing shoes. His feet are so calloused, he's able to go a distance I can't go. How thick is your faith? How cushioned is your faith? Is it thick enough to take the blows of life? I'm not saying that your faith's not real. But if your faith doesn't thicken up through constant use, Every jolt, every bump, every pebble that that you come across as a Christ follower, you're going to feel and it's going to cause aches and pains and it's going to be disruptive to you. And as you live, as you walk with the Lord Jesus, as you build up a thicker faith, a more calloused faith, not hard, but calloused, a thicker faith, it cushions you and things happen in your life and people say to you, "How, how could you get through that? And you say, what do you mean? Because you just weren't even disrupted by what would be devastating for somebody else. How do we thicken up our faith? We get on the road with Jesus every day. We get into his word, we pray, and then we go out and we live his word. And when we fail, we come to him for healing. And then we get back out and we continue to thicken our faith and deepen it and strengthen it. The thicker your faith, the deeper it is, the stronger it is, the more cushion it provides, the less ability the world has to disrupt you. Maybe all of you have seen the the videos that Ray Comfort has done, the evangelism street videos that Ray Comfort has done. I'm sorry? Oh, I love them. Or... uh, Oh, gosh, the guy who does Wretched TV. Oh, uh, Todd Friel. Todd Friel, or Todd Friel. You see these guys do the street evangelism? There's a young man who just went out. He's been arrested a number of times for simply reading the Bible in public. Have you ever thought about going down Norfolk Avenue and stopping somebody and asking them about their spiritual life? 
for, for many of us, that'd be terrifying. Do you think it was easy the first time Ray did it? Do you think it was flawless? Or did he take those steps and let the calluses build up and let his faith deepen? The illustrations just go on and on. If you swing a hammer for a living, you're going to get blisters till you get calluses. If you play guitar, you're going to get painful fingers until you build up calluses. So we need to thicken our faith in the word through prayer, through fellowship and encouraging one another. The encouragement primarily being don't quit. Keep walking. I know your feet hurt, so sit for a day, but then keep going. Don't stop. Father, we thank you for your love for us. The precious truth that uh, our faith can be thickened up. You give it to us. It's genuine. It's not going to fail us. But you mean for it to be a foundation upon which we live. And we thank you for this. Ask that you would help us to live with this truth uh, more deliberately. We thank you in Jesus' name.